canonic Christology, open theism, and process theism. What are the connection points between these three things? But first, this. This is, I think this is a pretty important development. Actually, it's just one gentleman who did this. This is the three forms of Baptist unity. The London Standards is what he titled it, uh, edited by Corey M. Bailey. Now, Corey is the same gentleman who uh, actually did a custom rebind of one of my Bibles. Uh, it's Let me get it here for you. I didn't get this out ahead of time. Um, uh, and this is the Bible that I use at the pulpit uh, every every Lord's Day. Uh, he did great work on this, put the Cairo symbol on the front. Um, this was a Holman. Uh, no, not a Holman. I'm sorry. This was a... Um, oh, now I'm totally blanking on the kind of Bible it is. Um, here, I'll tell you exactly what it is. Um, Thomas Nelson. I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Holman. That's, that's a whole different deal. Uh, no, this is New King James version by uh, Thomas Nelson. So it, it had a really nice original like goatskin uh, leather cover on it. It was black. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to use this as my pulpit Bible, I kind of want to, uh, you know, beef up the cover a little bit, put a full yap on it. And uh, the Cairo symbol, which I've always uh, loved and appreciated, the two first characters of our Lord's name in Greek, of our Lord's title, Messianic title in Greek. Um, and so, uh, I had Corey, uh, do this cover. He did a fantastic job. His work is affordable. So, you know, for pastors out there looking to do these kinds of things with their Bibles, I think Corey Bailey's excellent. His, his, uh, his website is vrmen, just vrmen.net. And so you can find him on there. Uh, and I believe these, uh, can be found on there as well. Again, he, um, this has the first London Confession, the second London Confession, and then the Baptist Catechism in it. And uh, the way that he's, a, I, which I think is very helpful to have those three documents together, you get to kind of see, uh, the, the nice thing about the first London, it, even though, you know, it wouldn't be, you know, like by itself, it wouldn't be the Baptist Confession, right? That would be the second London. But the nice thing about having the second or the first London in here is you get to see uh, kind of from a historical perspective the backdrop of the second London. So it's it's valuable, I think, to have have that in there, and then the second London, of course, and then the Baptist Catechism at the end. So this is just a good all around kind of toolbox uh, for things like family worship, you know, personal reading. Um, it, it, to give away to new church members, you know, there's, there's so many different uses, uh, that you can, uh, find for something like this. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's good that Baptists have something like this now, thanks to, uh, thanks to Corey Bailey. So again, go, uh, check him out at vrmen.net. I, I think it's a very, uh, valuable resource. Um, what I want to do today is I want to talk about, uh, Christol or Christology uh, in general, but I want to talk specifically about um, canonic Christology and what it has to do with open theism and process theism. There are uh, many who would functionally hold to a canonic Christology, but they would deny, I think, uh, I think they would do so um, inconsistently. They would deny things like process theism and open theism. Uh, but I think if consistently taken, there's definitely a, a very tight and necessary relationship between canonic Christology uh, and uh, something like open theism and 
uh, theistic or not theistic personalism, but um, uh, but process theism. Uh, we'll go through what each of these things mean. But what I would like to do at the outset is I would like to read a chapter eight of the London Confession, the second London Confession. Chapter eight is of Christ the Mediator, and I would like to read uh, specifically uh, Article two uh, or paragraph two of that chapter, which says this: it "says the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things He made, He hath made, did when the fullness of time was come." Take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So you have a basic assertion there of the incarnation. Uh, you know, Christ is God, and in the fullness of time he assumed to himself the fullness of a human nature. Uh, being conceived, and it goes for it. It's, it starts to dig into the doctrine of the incarnation a little bit more. It's being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made, and in this way, or and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without, and these, these three terms are really important here, without conversion, so without conversion of the divine nature into the human nature, that's not what happened, without composition, the two coming together to essentially cause or, or, or make one person of Christ, uh, so without conversion, without composition, without confusion. So the human nature is not divinized and the divine nature is not humanized. So very important terms there. Without conversion, composition, or confusion. Very important terms that will help you in your own formulation and understanding of a, a proper and orthodox and biblical Christology. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and Man, So I, I wanted to read that very orthodox statement of Christology, especially as it relates to the Incarnation, before getting into what these terms mean. Again, we're going to be looking at really three operative terms here uh, in this episode, and that is canonic Christology. All right, so that's one thing. Open theism, and uh, I keep forgetting the, the third one, um, uh, process theism. Uh, so, canonic Christology, open theism, and process theism. Um, what are each of these words? Uh, what, what do they mean? Canonic Christology has reference to, a, a f you know, there's some variation within what we would call canonic Christology, uh, some, some differing of opinion uh, within the overall uh, kind of, you know, uh, category of canonic Christology, but suffice it to say that canonic Christology believes in a divestment, a, th a, div a, div a divestment theory of the incarnation. What is a divestment theory of the incarnation? A divestment theory of the incarnation would state that the Son gave something up in order to become a man. Now, there are different different degrees to which uh, canonic theorists believe that the Son gave something up in order to become man. Uh, the most extreme would say, well, 
you know, this this self-emptying of the Son was complete such that it's basically a conversion of his divine nature into a human nature. He's he's losing his divinity in order to become human. That would be on the extreme end of, of the canonic theory. Um, kind of along the more moderate lines, you would have some who would say, well, um, in becoming a man, the Son divested himself of at least some divine attributes. And maybe even more softly than that, you would have some say that the Son, in order to become man, um, suspended his use or suspended his operation of various divine capacities or powers in his manhood. And that is the manner in which he became man. All of those uh, differing opinions uh, are, are just different in terms of grade. Uh, they all have this in common. They believe that the son divested something, lost something, traded something in, suspended something uh, in order to become man. Okay, so all of those, you know, differing views and differing extents to which uh, the son divests this or that attribute or this or that, you know, measure the divine essence or whatever language they would use. All of those opinions would constitute some kind of canonic Christology. I would say the prevailing opinion today, unfortunately, when it comes to, you know, mainstream evangelical Christianity and even within uh, some of the uh, re reformed circles, uh, those who would who would claim to confess something like the Second London or the Westminster, um, I think there's a prevailing opinion or at least a prevailing assumption that something like a divestment theory of the incarnation has taken place. All right, that the Son has suspended some you know operation, uh, some divine operation, in order to become man, such that while he was man, these divine operations were suspended and so on. I think that that's a, a functional opinion or assumption in a lot of Christian circles. Um, most, most of the time, it's just due to uh, ignorance, you know, and I don't say that by way of insult. Uh, you know, all of us were at certain times in our lives, you know, in this stage where we wouldn't quite formulate or, or state the doctrine of the incarnation like we would today. So, you know, granting that the Holy Spirit works on everyone in differing degrees and at differing rates, um, we need to understand that I think the majority of, of Christians would, would hold an opinion like that out of ignorance. It wouldn't necessarily be because they say, well, uh, I, I know exactly what I'm talking about, and and this is where I'm at, and I'm sticking to it, and I'm drawing a line in the sand. I don't think that's what's going on for most Christians. However, I think that there is uh, some of that. I think that there is some of that, and that is uh, definitely concerning. It's um, it's something that we want to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, avoid, and uh, we want to make sure that we have a a proper, you know, biblical Christology. Um, so canonic theory, it, it could get very complicated because you see how there's different grades of opinions within, you know, the grouping of, uh, of uh, canonic Christology. But just to simplify matters, it, it holds all canonic theorists, all of those who would fall within the, the category of canonic Christology would hold that the son divested something of his div divinity in order to become man. All right, full stop. All right, so that would the the the, the emptying of the sun, uh, the uh, uh, 
the emptying of the sun that we often, you know, that we see in places like Philippians 2 uh, is performed in the manner of the sun giving something of his divinity up in order to become man. Okay, so that's that's all canonic theorists, all of those who fall within canonic Christology would hold uh, to that to one degree or another. Open theism and uh, process theism, what are those things? Open theism would say that in God, that is in the divine essence, um, there is ignorance. There are certain unknowables for God, things that he cannot know because they're unknowable. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and as a result, there are just things that, that will happen at some point um, that God doesn't at this present moment know. Uh, these are things that are unknowable, unknowable to us, and unknowable to God. And so they would basically, again, there are different opinions when it comes to uh, something like um, open theism, you know, the extent to which that's the case and all of that. But at, at bottom, there's ignorance in God. God is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. It's a denial of divine omniscience. Okay, that's what uh, open theism is. And then uh, uh, process theism would say that, again, granting different degrees of belief in process theism, the extreme version would be that upon creation, God entered into process along with his creation so that when, when, when creation occurs or when the world is actualized, uh, necessarily so, God enters into some kind of a give and take, ebb and flow with his creation. There are less extreme forms of, of, uh, of process theism than that. Uh, John Frame uh, gets dangerously close, I think, to that kind of process theism when he posits two, basically two existences in God. He's not talking about the incarnation. He's talking about two existences, one of which begins to occur or begins to obtain at the creation of the world. And that, that secondary mode of existence uh, is where God enters into creation and there's this kind of give and take, you know, personal um, uh, interchange between God and his creation beginning at uh, creation itself. Uh, and so, that, I, you know, he would, John Frame would, of course, to be fair, deny affiliation with open theism. Um, but I would say consistently so, he's, he, he would fall within, you know, more of a soft brand, uh, not open theism, but, uh, but process theism, uh, because he does understand there to be a give and take relationship um, between God and his creation. Um, he thinks that that's required for divine eminence, uh, and uh, otherwise God will be wholly other, transcendent only, and we can't know him. And so there are various reasons that people uh, opine positions like that. So what do I want to say here uh, about those three things? Uh, canonic theory or canonic Christology, open theism, and process theism. Well, um, I, like I said at the very beginning, there are those who would want to, to basically articulate something approaching a canonic Christology, but they would abhor you know, open theism or process theism. They would deny both of those uh, and, and, and in fact, perhaps even call them heresy. They would call open theism heresy and process theism heresy. But 
um, what I want to what I wanted to do is I wanted to just make the connection between process and open theism, and uh, on the one hand, and canonic Christology on the other. The reality is is that if if one were if one holds to canonic Christology, and that and that Christology entails the divestment of certain divine attributes the divestment of the divine essence, the divestment of divine operations. Um, you're looking at a compromise of the doctrine of God on several levels, one of which would be immutability. So if a divine person who just is the divine essence, right, uh, according to a, a, a particular mode of subsistence or manner of subsistence, the sun, for example, were to cease essentially being God in this or that way. You know, we're sus he, he, he's allegedly suspending his use of various divine prerogatives, uh, suspending his v various divine attributes, uh, or laying them aside is sometimes the language that's used. If that's the case, then there has to be a change in the divine nature, right? Uh, there has to be, at very minimum, God the Son is moving from participating in these divine operations and possessing these divine attributes. He's moving from that state of being to another state of being, which is not possessing them, right? Or not having access to various divine prerogatives. So there's a change going on in God, all right? So there would be a compromise at the level of divine immutability. There would also be a compromise in terms of divine simplicity, because even in the language that I've been using right now, you can tell how there is necessarily a, a real distinction or a real separation between the Son and the divine essence, such that the two are not identical. Um, and then there would have to be a separation between various divine attributes in the case of uh, a canonic theorist wanting to say that, well, the Son only laid aside some of the divine attributes, but not others. You would have to have a real separation or a real distinction between the divine attributes. They could not be one with the essence of God, right? And so there would be a compromise uh, on the vista of divine simplicity as well. But what does open theism have to do with any of this? Uh, well, open theism has a lot to do with this. Um, and, and, and again, it comes back down to the extent to which these things are affirmed, and we all grant that there are differing opinions in each of these schools of thought and all that. But there would have to be some kind of a seminal open theism in the canonic theory in, in the sense that, you know, usually what uh, uh, canonic theorists will do is they will point to passages um, that uh, would necessarily entail or explicitly state uh, the son's ignorance. For example, uh, no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, 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 Mark 13, 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Now, the canonic uh, the, the one holding to canonic Christology would say, well, the implication of that text is that the person of the Son is absolutely ignorant. Uh, there's no partitive exegesis, so there's no attributing this ignorance just to the person of the Son according to his human nature. This is an absolute attribution of ignorance to the person of the Son without regard to the distinction of natures, right? Uh, human and divine. 
And so they would want to say in light of Mark 13, 32, well, that ignorance uh, is, is in the Son. The Son is ignorant of the day and hour because he has laid aside or suspended some divine operations, namely omniscience. Okay, But if the Son is God, right? God the Son uh, has suspended his omniscience in order to become man. Not only do you have a divestment theory of the incarnation, canonic theory, but you also have a, a denial of divine omniscience, at least for the period or the bracket of the incarnation or the earthly ministry of Christ. Um, and, and so there would be a, a, a kind of quasi-open theism, if not a full-blown open theism to some extent. Again, divine simplicity and divine immutability would have to be brought into this conversation to give a more full-fledged critique of, of canonic Christology, but, um, uh, but I won't be able to get into all of that. There is the other issue that arises in these conversations, or, or rather it doesn't arise in these conversations, and it's, rather, it, it, it's, it's, it's brushed over, it's not talked about, it's not brought up. But the issue is that uh, the Son, once he assumes to himself the fullness of a human nature, never ceases being the God-man. And so when, a, when someone who holds to canonic Christology sees the incarnation really uh, in relation to the person of the Son, as the, you have the person of the Son, he gives up his divinity, right? And that's his humiliation while he's on earth. And then upon his ascension, he retains his divinity, or he, he, he re-obtains his divinity uh, and, 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 and assumes once more those divine prerogatives and operations and, and so on and so forth. It ignores the reality that even upon the ascension, the Lord Jesus maintains his human nature. All right, so how is the human nature to be understood in relation to the divine nature uh, when it comes to the Son who is in heaven, ascended on high, following the completion of, of, of his work here on earth. And that, I, you know, that would have to press us to consider how the two natures relate in the one person of, of the Son. Um, it, would, it would have to press us to consider uh, the nature, the distinction between the divine nature and the human nature, uh, what, what, these natures are uh, exactly, uh, and it would have to it, it would it would press us to understand uh, the operation of the person of the Son according to either nature, divine or human, as being operations that 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 continue on into eternity. Um, and so, if they continue on into eternity, then why why this dip? Why this why this giving up divine? prerogatives and operations and so on. Uh, and, and, and why does the ascension make a difference in terms of the son's retention of those, of those attributes and those divine prerogatives? Uh, so there are all sorts of problems. The solution, I think, is to understand it in terms of the Second London Confession. And if we understand it in terms of the Second London Confession, we understand that God the Son uh, continued to be God, uh, to operate according to the divine nature even, to retain all divine prerogative, even whilst he subsisted in a human nature. 
and that that continues to be the dynamic going forward. So that uh, God the Son is very God, and he is truly man right now. Um, not just in in terms of his earthly ministry and his earthly sojourn here, but from the incarnation onward, right? And so now now we don't have uh, to to deal with the issues of, you know, denying divine immutability and divine simplicity and 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 divine omniscience and so on. We can just say, well, God the Son maintained his divinity, retained his divinity. Everything that could be said about the Father could be said about the Son, even while the Son was in his human nature, right? Even while the Son was in his humiliation. Everything that could be said about the Father, in terms of the Father's prerogatives, his operations, and so on, could be said about the Son as well, even in the Son's humiliation. It would have to be said according to his divine nature, not according to the human nature, yet it could nevertheless be predicated of his person. Right? Because both natures, divine and human, are perfectly united in the one person of Christ. Um, so, you know, theology has consequences, and uh, the things that we confess or the things that we don't confess have consequences, and uh, some of those consequences can be pretty brutal and, and can affect a lot of the ways in which we see God, who, you know, who is God? What is God? That's a very most important question that we could ask. And, and it, it's amazing how a, a, a false view of the incarnation can actually affect what we think about God, you know, uh, and it can affect what we, what we think, of course, about Christ and our mediator and what it means to say that he was fully human and what it means to say that he is fully God. I think even in places like John 1 and Philippians 2, you see uh, the present reality of his deity, even in the midst of passages that speak of his assumption of humanity. Um, uh, Philippians 2, he's in the form of God. Uh, in John chapter 1, you, you get really a full-fledged doctrine of the incarnation, I think, a very well-developed doctrine of the incarnation. Interestingly, it goes... It goes in the same order that the second paragraph of chapter 8 of our confession does because it states his deity, but then, it, you know, the further down you get towards verse 14, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, right? You get to the incarnation or the assumption of uh, a human nature by which he, he, he dwells among us. And so uh, these are very important questions. Uh, so to, to end... I'll just summarize what I've said over the last 25 minutes, and that is this. Canonic Christology is the theory that the Son divested something of the divine essence in order to become a man. Again, there are different extents to which people believe that. Uh, open theism is essentially positing divine ignorance, denying omniscience in God. That's what open theism is. Again, there are different extents to which people believe that. And then uh, uh, process theism is basically a denial of, the div of divine immutability, saying that upon creation, really, God enters into this give-and-take ebb and flow with his creation. And uh, there are different extents to which people hold to that. The way in which these are all related, beginning with canonic Christology, is to say if the Son divested himself of some divine attributes, uh, 
then there has to be change, right? That's your that's your process theism. And in some cases, depending about depending on how the canonic Christology is is built out, how it's understood, how it's developed, uh, you also have a denial of omniscience. That there's a the the ignorance passages like Mark thirteen thirty two apply to the divinity of the person, so called. Uh, just as it would apply to his humanity, that there is really no distinction between the divine and human natures in the person of Christ, but that uh, indeed the person of Christ absolutely without distinction or qualification divested himself of omniscience, and that would entail some kind of open theism. So we have to be very careful about how we understand uh, the incarnation, about how we understand the person of Christ, the divine nature, the human nature, you know, uh, the Chalcedonian uh, definition was written for a reason. It was written to uh, expound upon and um, and further define the Nicene Creed. Uh, and it does a very good job of parsing between the divine and human natures. And when we read the text of Scripture, we have to understand that that which is proper to the divine nature must be ascribed to the divine nature. That which is proper to the human nature must be ascribed to the human nature. Okay, I'll go ahead and end there. God bless you guys. Hopefully this was a helpful episode. If it was, share it. If you were benefited by it, somebody else will be too. God bless.